All right, Steve Palmer here, bringing you a special edition of Lawyer Talk. We are on the eve of Kyle Rittenhouse. That's right. It is Halloween Sunday, October 31st. Kyle Rittenhouse trial up in Wisconsin is going to begin tomorrow. And I was going to provide some uh, Lawyer Talk legal breakdown on uh, what we can expect. Uh, And then I got the idea earlier today that I should reach out to a gentleman named Andrew Branca, B-R-A-N. C.A. Andrew is an attorney. He's nationally known. He is an expert in the area of self-defense. He provides legal commentary to uh, all sorts of news outlets. I saw him uh, recently quoted extensively in the Daily Wire. Uh, He also consults regularly with uh, trial lawyers in some of the big nationally known media cases uh, that that go to trial. Uh, And really just an incredible wealth of knowledge. So as I thought about what I was going to do with the Rittenhouse case, uh, I decided I, I would just uh, give Andrew a call and uh, get his thoughts on it. And it turned out we had a great discussion, not only about uh, Kyle Rittenhouse and what to expect there, but also all sorts of issues uh, relative to self-defense law and, and what is going on in that area of law uh, from his perspective and mine as a criminal defense lawyer. So uh, without uh, too much chitter-chatter here, uh, let's, uh, let's cut into my uh, earlier conversation with Andrew. Uh, here we go. Okay, well, uh, I have Andrew Bronca on the phone, an expert, a lawyer. Uh, I've, I've met Andrew once before, but uh, I thought I'd reach out to him to get some commentary on the upcoming Rittenhouse trial that is uh, starting next week, I believe. And uh, he was uh, kind enough to take his time here on Sunday before the trial to, uh, uh, to talk to us. So, Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm very happy to be here, Steve. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, great. Um, you know, we we met once before, and I remember talking to you quite a bit about self defense issues. I'm a I'm a criminal defense attorney. I try cases, and I've tried uh, many, many, many self defense uh, murder trials, assault, uh, attempted murder, those kind of things. And I I, I really enjoyed the discussion about uh, sort of the the textbook stuff, uh, and then the reality courtroom stuff. And you have a, a background and experience, sort of in both, right? I mean, you do some training in real self defense, but you're also an attorney with uh, the technical legal side. That's right. So our, our legal practice um, in terms of nuts and bolts law these days is largely as a legal consultant to other attorneys, attorneys such as yourself who would be lead counsel on their case, uh, who are looking for some uh, kind of more technical support on very specific aspects of self-defense law in particular. So that's where our entire focus is. But of course, as you know, in any criminal defense there's thousands of components that arise in terms of procedure and legal arguments and admissibility of evidence and all kinds of things that we don't touch upon at all. That's all in the hands of the lead counsel. So uh, our only expertise is on that use of force law in particular. Gotcha. And then as far as just a quick background, um, you're an attorney, I think you've been practicing, did did I say for almost 40 years or four decades? Just over 30 years now. In fact, this year is 30 years. Oh, congratulations. You've got me by like four years. I'm 26 this year. But uh, uh, And then it, you, as a legal consultant, uh, obviously you've discussed that. Uh, you also wrote a book, uh, The Law of Self-Defense, if I'm not mistaken, right? Indeed. Uh, that's um, We actually think of that book as kind of our, uh, our a fat business card we give out to people, uh, mostly for free. By the way, if any of your listeners would like a free copy of the book, they can get it at lawofselfdefense.com slash free book. It's a real book, physical book, 200 something pages. Um, We think of it as a fat business card just to expose people to what we do, give them some education on use of force law, because unfortunately what we tend to see the cases we consult on at least are almost 
invariably normal law-abiding people who've never been in trouble with the law before a day in their lives. Um, but they're in a situation where they're frightened, they display their gun, uh, usually they never even fire a shot, but then they find themselves charged with aggravated assault with a firearm, they're looking at felony time in prison, uh, and it's not because they acted out of malice, it's because largely they acted out of ignorance, and I, I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, I mean that in the technical sense, that they were literally ignorant of what the rules were uh, for use of force. So we focus a lot of our efforts on just trying to get people educated up front so that they won't end up criminally charged, won't end up needing our legal consulting services, uh, because that's by far the most cost-effective um, reality for everybody. Yeah, sure. Hey, hey yeah, let me sure. stop you there. Can hey, you, uh, you uh, let's, let's you, check uh, check your gain or your check, level? Can you turn it down maybe a, a bit? I'm getting some. It's sounding sort of funky. Sounding sort of funky. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not an expert on this stuff, so this is any better? Yeah, say something. Okay. All right. Well, we'll just leave it. Um, you know, it's an interesting uh, 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 outlook on it to try to get in front of self-defense type problems for, for people who uh, may get into uh, issues on their end. And I think what you're talking about is like fo- like now more than ever, we have people running around or, or, or sort of living, carrying a concealed handgun uh, lawfully with either a permit or in a state where they just can carry it. Uh, and they probably had some training. And, and I think what you're saying is you sort of get in front of of these issues and try to help people before they would ever have to use their weapon uh, and get involved in a self-defense scenario or have to have to end up in court at all. And uh, that kind of training I have found when I talk to people, they are quite surprised at how quickly uh, the legal system can turn on them and, and ruin their lives. The most common thing I hear from clients on cases I consult on is, I can't believe I'm getting prosecuted for self-defense. Um, because in their heads, they have a genuine good faith belief that what they did was lawful self-defense. And, and sometimes it was, but unfortunately, often it wasn't. Um, and when people do get training, um, it's not so much that they don't know, quote unquote, know self-defense law. It's just a lot of what they've been taught is bad information because the people who taught them weren't properly trained on what the legal boundaries of self-defense were. I mean, I have a concealed carry permit. I've carried a gun every day of my adult life. I've taken a lot of different concealed carry courses. Um, And unfortunately, there's a lot of bad information and misinformation in those classes. And it leads people to believe that conduct is lawful when in fact it's not or can easily be made to look like it's not. Yeah, I I agree. And I think there's this notion that people... uh the the people that I represent by and large in these types of cases never in any other scenario would find themselves in a in defending a, 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 against a criminal defense allegation or against a crime levied against them by the state um, and I think when they're out there when they're engaged in whatever they have done to get them there they feel like they're doing right they feel like they are on the side of right and on the side of justice they, in fact yeah, I think if you ask those people they would uh, uh, they would nine times out of ten be on the side of the prosecution in cases, and now uh, they are faced with uh, the the real stark reality that uh, it doesn't always feel fair when you're sitting on the defense side of the table. For sure, and of course, it's uh, it's a particularly terrifying position for those people because, as you say, they've never been in trouble with the law before, and now they're looking at spending real time in prison on uh, felony conviction charges and. Uh, it's a terrible position for them to be in. The good news is that 
avoiding that fate is is generally not that difficult. These rules of self-defense I talk about, the, the correct law of self-defense, it's not rocket science. There's not 500 elements to a claim of self-defense or even 50. There, at most, there's five. So it's not hard for people to get educated on this. They just have to, one, know they need a proper education and then to actually go and get it. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, uh, you know, obviously there are different rules of self-defense in, in different states throughout the country. Uh, I, I, I'm familiar with Ohio's, but is there is there sort of a standard, you said five elements or maybe three elements, or how would you break it down just for uh, the average individual who would like to know what is uh, what makes it self-defense and what makes it not self-defense? Right. So when you say there's different rules for self-defense in different states, I'd say that's true, but also not quite true. And what I mean by that is um, the generalized legal framework for self-defense is pretty much common across the 50 states. Of course, they all have their own statutes and case law and jury instructions, and there are variances around the edges, and that can matter. That can make the difference between getting convicted or getting acquitted. Uh, But the general framework in America, in all 50 states, is something, this is a very old area of the law. I mean, we adopted it as a new nation from old English common law, where it was well established for hundreds of years before that. Um, so really, self-defense law is about 80% the same in terms of fundamental principles across all 50 states. It doesn't really vary very much. Now, I should make clear, when I say self-defense law, I'm talking about use of force law. When are you permitted to use force under what circumstances? I'm not talking about gun law or weapons law, which varies enormously across the 50 states. In fact, even within states, uh, there's a lot of variance depending on if a a local county or a local city is allowed to have its own weapons uh, regulations as well. So I don't do weapons or guns law, just use of force law. When you can use force in defense of yourself, in defense of others, or defense of property. And that's a pretty stable area of the law. Now, Ohio, ironically enough, has seen some uh, pretty substantial changes just in the last couple of years. But really, they've been kind of catching up to the rest of the country um, in terms of their use of force law. They were a little behind the times, frankly. Yeah, we used to be dealing uh, in Ohio just until just a couple of years ago, self-defense was still an affirmative defense, meaning I had to go into a courtroom and actually prove it. Uh, I had to prove the elements of self-defense. Uh, now, and, and we, we always got into this sort of hair-splitting uh, argumentation about uh, the prosecutor's proof of beyond a reasonable doubt on the essential elements of the crime, and then the defense uh, proof, which was just a preponderance of the evidence, uh, and then how all that fit together logically. It, it really is, even even a trained logician or a, a defense lawyer, whoever, it, it gets you can you, you can uh, you can get circular really quickly on some of that stuff. It's much it's much cleaner today, and I mean now in Ohio and all the other forty nine states, they essentially now self defense a legal claim of self defense is basically a negative element of whatever the the criminal charge is. So the state has to prove the crime beyond a reasonable doubt, and then disprove self defense beyond a reasonable doubt. Of course, the first part of that problem is pretty easy for the state in a self defense case because when you claim self defense in the first place, you're essentially conceding to the underlying conduct, right? You're not you're not saying it wasn't me. I didn't fire the shot. I was someplace else. I have an alibi. Uh, you're saying the opposite of that. You're saying it was me. I, I shot that guy, but I had the legal justification of self defense. That's the part that now the state has to disprove beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah, and that makes it a lot cleaner. And, and you know, as I stand up in front of juries and argue these types of cases, not having to deal with with some of the nuance of how the burden shifting works and how the proof works uh, makes it a lot easier. 
and then and then you just sort of get into the elements. So if, if in, as you said, you really talk about use of force and when is it authorized, when is it not, and how much force is is are we allowed to use? Uh, what do people need to know about that, generally speaking? Sure. So. Um what I discovered years ago as a young lawyer who was at gun matches and gun shows and gun stores and being asked what the rules of uh, use of force were. And frankly, I don't know what your law school experience was like, but in my three years of law school, we spent maybe uh, three minutes talking about self-defense law in first year criminal law class. Uh, excuse me just a moment. Had another call coming in. Um, so we didn't get, I didn't get much education in self-defense law in law school, so I had to um, pursue that afterwards. And what I discovered is I looked after, at state after state after state, looking for enormous variances in their self-defense law. I found that there weren't that many variances. In fact, they all shared basically the same legal framework for self-defense that can be defined in terms of five different elements of a self-defense claim, only up to five. That's the maximum. Uh, sometimes not all five. Uh, applied depending on the the specific law of the state or the circumstances of the uh, of the case, but those five elements are very straightforward. Uh, in fact, we have an infographic. People can just download lawofselfdefense.com/elements. We don't try to keep this stuff secret. This is just law. Um, but the five elements are innocence, imminence, proportionality, avoidance, and reasonableness. And if you'd like, I could quickly step through each of those. Yeah, let's do it. So. Innocence has to do with who was the initial aggressor in the confrontation. So obviously, self-defense is intended to allow the victim of an attack to defend themselves. It's not intended to allow the attacker to justify their use of force as somehow lawful. Uh, so the element of innocence, first, you must not have been the initial aggressor in the fight. The second element is imminence, meaning the threat you're defending yourself against either has to be in progress or immediately about to occur. It can't be some past threat that's over. It can't be some future speculative threat that may never happen. It has to be something that's about to happen right now. Um, proportionality has to do with the degree of force involved in the confrontation. And in a nutshell, if you're facing only a non-deadly force threat, someone shoves you, for example, you can defend yourself against that, but only using non-deadly defensive force. You can't use deadly defensive force unless you're facing a deadly force threat. So that's the proportion there. Non-deadly to non-deadly or deadly to deadly. Uh, the fourth element is avoidance. And that's the one that's most commonly excused because most states are stand your ground states. Most states do not impose a legal duty to retreat. There's only about 11 states actually that impose the legal duty to retreat. And that's what the element of avoidance is about. Does the jurisdiction impose a legal duty to retreat if safely possible before you're privileged to use force in self-defense? Ohio, until very recently, was one of those duty to retreat states. But within the last, I think, three or four years, uh, they've also become, uh, they've joined the majority of states, become a stand your ground state. So the element of avoidance in an otherwise lawful case of self-defense no longer applies in Ohio or, or most other states for that matter. And finally, we have the element of reasonableness, which is kind of best thought of as uh, an umbrella element that hangs over all the others. And what that requires is first, that the defender must have had a genuine good faith belief in the need to act in self-defense. So he had to believe himself in his head that self-defense was necessary. Uh, but that by itself is not enough. That belief also has to be objectively reasonable. A, a theoretical, reasonable and prudent person in the same circumstances would have shared that 
good faith belief. And an irrational, genuinely held belief uh, in the need to act in self-defense is not enough. It has to be genuine and objectively reasonable. And when those elements are present, you have a valid claim of self-defense. The trick is, uh, we just talked about how the state has the burden to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. They don't need to disprove the entirety of the self-defense claim. They merely need to disprove any one of those required elements because the required elements are cumulative. Whichever ones are required, well, they're required. Um, and if the state can disprove any single one of the required elements beyond a reasonable doubt, the, the entire claim of self-defense collapses. Yeah, so it's like a almost a case within a case. They have to. It, it it's the the old bursting bubble theory. Once one of those is gone, you don't get your self defense, and you don't get your self defense claim. I guess right. Um, and, that, and that's, if there's five elements required, and they dis, disprove one of the five, you're not left with eighty percent of a self defense claim. You're left with nothing. Right. It is an all or nothing scenario, which is, you know, an interesting point to make, I guess, while we're at that is that when I tell people this kind of or when I consult with clients on this kind of thing, uh, the, the, the very real prospect of an all or nothing scenario, you know, it's like life or death almost uh, in a courtroom. I mean, if you lose any one of those things, uh, in many cases, we're talking about murder in Ohio with a gun that would be 18 to life. Uh, and that's just uh, getting started. So it is a huge, huge swing of possibilities if just one of those elements is not present uh, and, and the consequences are, are enormous. Yeah, absolutely uh, catastrophic. I often describe it as an old school light switch. It's either on or off. Either you qualify for self-defense or you don't. There, there's not really a middle ground. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to, uh, uh, in a second here, we're going to get to the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse case, but uh, I want to sort of share some of my, uh, maybe our discussion we, we had at our dinner that night and, and some of the thoughts I have on self-defense generally, because I have the kind of cases where it becomes a very surgical case, where I really want to focus on the elements of self-defense um, and, and, and really dissect each one. And then I have more the emotional cases where I really, for maybe because the elements aren't so clear right. or there's a lot of uh, interpretation, I just want to look at the emotional side of it, of right and wrong in a bigger picture. And a lot of times what I'm doing is uh, I'm, I'm getting down to uh, what my theory of the case is going to be. I just want the instruction. I just need self-defense in the case, and then I can run with it. And, uh, and sometimes I focus on one or more of the elements, but sometimes I don't focus on any, and sometimes I focus on all of them. Uh, it just all depends. As you go in and consult with, uh, with uh, crazy trial lawyers like me, how, how, do you, how do you guys deal with that? Because it's one thing to say, here's the elements, but then, then you know, in the context of a given fact pattern, things can get blurry quickly. So my contribution is really on the highly technical end of the contribution. So when I consult on a case, typically what happens is that the lead counsel sells, sends me the uh, you know, entire evidentiary file, so I have everything. Um, I look at that state's very specific uh, use of force laws. Obviously, when you're actually consulting on a case, the specific details of that jurisdiction's laws becomes uh, very important. You want to make sure you're not missing anything. And my work product to the lawyer is essentially an expert report. It's usually 100 or 200 pages in length. Um, and it steps through those specific elements of self-defense laws I just discussed, but of course in the context of the specific statutes, case law, jury instructions of the particular jurisdiction. So my focus is strictly on the technical aspects. Um, and I come to a conclusion of whether or not it seems 
likely or probable to a reasonable degree of legal certainty that the state would be able to disprove any one of those required elements beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what uh, the client attorney, and the client for me, by the way, is the lead attorney. It's not the, the person who's been charged. Um, that's what the client attorney receives from me, that expert report. Um, then how they if, if incorporate that into the broader aspects of the legal defense, which certainly includes all the other aspects that, that you just discussed, is is really within the the scope of what the lead counsel is doing on the case. Have you ever been called as a witness to, to comment on use of force or the force continuum uh, on behalf of any defendants or maybe even a, a, in, in a civil case, perhaps? So we get a lot of inquiries, but no, I've never actually had to uh, had to take a witness stand and be sworn and testify as an expert. And frankly, I, I would be surprised, actually, if a judge would allow that, because my area of expertise is, of course, the law, uh, but the the legal expert in the courtroom, the master of the law in the courtroom, is supposed to be the judge. Um, so normally judges don't like it even when the lead counsel or the prosecutor in the room is starting to te tell the jury what the law is. That's the job of the judge as far as most judges are concerned. So um, now I have... I, I know for a fact that our expert reports influence a lot of cases. I mean, you work with attorneys like Derek, who, who've had me consult on their cases with very positive effect. Uh, normally, that happens early in the criminal justice pipeline process, though, but well before uh, the trial has begun or is about to begin. Um, that's when we can have our largest effect, because we, we have our best effect when we're influencing the prosecutor's decision of whether he wants to take this trial uh, this case to trial in the first place. Uh, by the time the trial's upon us, uh, everyone's already committed to whatever their course of action is. The case is going to trial regardless. And our focus is really trying to help the client avoid getting to that advanced step of the process in the first place. Because by then, I mean, you can still hope to avoid the conviction, of course, which is the most important thing. But, you know, you've, you've undergone the stress and the cost and, and all that is associated with being a, a felony defendant in a criminal trial. And we try to bring our efforts to bear to avoid that from happening, to avoid the, the process itself from becoming the punishment, even if the client's acquitted at the end. Yeah, and I think it's probably helpful to note here is that what you're really talking about is uh, in in the real world when I get a call uh, on a case like this, and I've had plenty of them. Uh, it, it, there's this evaluation phase. Rarely are cases uh, uh, like TV cases where there was a shooting yesterday and then tomorrow there's an indictment. Uh, there's usually a, a fairly uh, a longer investigative type phase in cases like this because. You know, if it's if it's not so clear one way or another, I think prosecutors, by and large, they want to uh, they want to make sure that they're going to bring a case, they can win it, and and I'll try to give them the benefit of the doubt that they want to if they're going to bring a case, they want to they want to make sure it's the right thing to do. So we you know lawyers like uh, we can bring you in and um, and get your opinion and maybe either share the contents of it or share the substance of it through our own conversations, and that can help influence whether there's a charge in the first place before it ever happens. I think that's sort of what you're getting at. Exactly right. Um, now, the other there, there is an elephant in the room here, and that is uh, like a case like the Rittenhouse case uh, and some of the other huge national stand-your-ground type cases. Uh, you've got the, the politically charged, media-charged, uh, almost uh, hue and cry type influences over these cases. 
and I imagine you've been involved in uh, in several of those. Sure. Uh, what's your experience on how that deal, how that uh, how that plays out in uh, in the technical terms of self defense? Well, you know, as you noted, I mean, I, I've worked on cases a lot, of course, and they all involve a prosecutor. There, are, I, I generally do criminal cases, and the prosecutors I've worked with are generally well intentioned public servants trying to do the right thing. That's my normal experience. But when you get to these uh, racially or politically energized cases, all that goes out the window. Uh, all the normal standards of conduct go out the window. Uh, nothing matters but pursuing the process. Um, things like um, charging uh, documents will contain purported evidence uh, consistent with guilt that ultimately never appears at the actual trial. I mean, it was all smoke and mirrors. Um, I see this time after time. And unfortunately, Unfortunately, there's there's no consequences for a prosecutor in those situations. If they've kind of misled from the beginning in order to get the defendant into trial in the first place, and then when you look in hindsight, you realize, oh, those claims they made early on to get this into the process, uh, they never came to anything. They were all nonsense. They were, there's nothing there. Um, well, no one says, oh, well, we can't have the trial then. They just go ahead with the trial. Um, and I see it in case after case including with this Rittenhouse case. I mean, the prosecutor makes all kinds of insinuations about Rittenhouse being a vigilante, inserting himself into situations where he has no purview. Uh, first of all, none of that is relevant to the actual elements of the criminal charges or the legal defenses. But in any case, there's there's no evidence to support that. And so... What yeah, yeah, the... Go ahead. Go I'm ahead, sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's, it's fine. Go ahead. If you let me talk, I'll talk for 20 minutes at a time, so... Well, that's perfect. Yeah, that's why, that's why we're doing it. But... Uh, now, you know, the, the interesting part of that is the media, the public, everybody uh, gets a gets an early impression of the case based on what you're talking about. And I, too, have had the experience where uh, what those that initial impression is nonsense. It's not true. It didn't happen that way. And I know in Rittenhouse, there was talk about militia. There was talk about uh, these sort of um, militant right wing organizations and you know, everybody hears AR-15 and they think that this is a horrible thing. And, you know, everybody draws a conclusion in their head or paints a picture in their head of this case or of uh, the defendant. And the, it's really hard. It's almost indelibly ingrained at that point. And as trial lawyers, we have to undo that if possible or uh, more more accurate probably is just know that it's there and there's nothing we can do about it. Right. Uh, and you're right. There isn't there isn't any con there isn't any uh, uh, way to fix it with the prosecutor later. It's uh, periodically I, I teach at the FBI Academy down in Quantico. And I, uh, my normal talk is uh, about these kinds of cases, these politically energized cases uh, where the the public is completely misled about the the nature of the case. Uh, but once misled, it's almost impossible to change their minds. And I'll be talking to an audience of two or three hundred senior law enforcement from all over the country, uh, captains, that kind of level from their departments, plus senior FBI special agents. And I'll ask them, for example, say the Zimmerman case is a great example of this. How many people believe that George Zimmerman got out of his car after the police dispatcher told him not to do that? And every hand in the room will go up. And that never happened. He was never told not to get out of his car and then got out of his car in disregard of that instruction. It's a complete fabrication. But people believe it to be true. And not only did they believe it when they were told, they've now told other people this as if it were a fact. So they become emotionally invested in that perception of events. 
and I'll show evidence that that never happened. I'll play the dispatcher 911 call, and you can, from beginning to end, and obviously he was never told not to get out of his car. And you can see by their faces in the audience that they simply cannot absorb the truth that's contrary to their established perception of events. So especially in cases like Rittenhouse's, what, uh, 14 months now, in in case of the Ahmad Arbery case in Georgia, it's uh, 20-some months of, I would call it propaganda, indoctrination, false facts being hard embedded in people's minds. And if you watch them, like especially in the Arbery case, the last couple of weeks, the jury selection, those any on any given day when they're doing a jury selection on, on panels of 20 prospective jurors, half to three quarters of them have already come to a conclusion about the guilt of those defendants. Uh, and how you get a, a genuinely fair, unbiased, impartial jury after a year or two of, of hard indoctrination of the jury pool uh, is beyond me. Frankly, I don't I don't think it can be done. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I have a whole different philosophy on uh, getting a fair, impartial jury. Uh, I, I think the better question or the, the, my focus instead is I at least want to know where and how they are not fair and how they are not impartial because there is no way if you ask everybody every juror i've ever asked can you be fair and impartial and maybe this is overbroad not every juror because i've had some raise their hands and say they can't be but if you ask them well despite that can you be fair and impartial they're all going to say yes yeah, that's right um and, and and as a trial lawyer if i just sit down and say good enough uh we got a fair jury um i think that's 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 gross malpractice on my end i need to know that uh, and understand that w- everything you just said is exactly true. They believe it. They they know it already. Uh, and they it's really hard to convince them otherwise. And it, in this notion of confirmation bias, once I tell somebody something I believe, then it almost becomes a personal um, uh, agenda on my part not to have that contradicted. And I don't want to know. I'll turn my head. I'll stick my head in the sand. Uh, I, I don't want to hear the real facts because I already know them. And my ego is in the way, and I don't, I, I don't want to hear any differently because then, you know, the thought of being wrong uh, for 18 months or however long it's been is is uh, subconsciously impossible, impossible to live with. It is, um, and, and by the way, it, it, it doesn't uh, make these jurors bad people. It makes them normal people. So, uh, when you're somebody like an attorney, where your your day job is basically critical thinking all day long, show me the evidence, right, and examine it from all perspectives, as if you were attacking it, as if you were defending it. That's what we do as a living. Uh, But normal people don't do that. Normal people, when they go through their lives, they get some information, they come to a quick conclusion. As long as that conclusion doesn't interfere with their normal life functions, it's consistent with that, well, then they just go about their lives. Most people don't have the time and effort to critically examine every random piece of information that comes across their desk. We as lawyers have to do that. The normal public doesn't. Um, and because they don't, because they're acting as normal people, when they show up for jury selection, they've hard embedded whatever the narrative is that they've been exposed to for those that year or two years before they showed up at the courthouse. Yeah, and I think the only way that I know to deal with that is just to deal with it and and accept that it is true. And then if I'm going to try to pull it back. I'm going to try to reel it in or change somebody's perspective on it. You first have to bring it up and just call it out yeah. and uh, not in a in an aggressive way. And I think what you said there is so true and it, it, it's worthy of, of repeating is that it doesn't make people bad. It doesn't make them nefarious or have evil intent. It just makes them human. 
and you know lawyers you know we are we are trained to be inhuman at times i think and uh what what we don't want to do is uh is criticize people for a belief that they have uh because it's they've been told it for 14 months and uh they just have it so now we have to start talking about why they have it and how are they going to feel when it's different and only then can you start to unravel it. It's like you know the first step of uh, dealing with the problem is accepting you have it, right. and uh, you got to get to that point. And by the way, I, w- I would point out too that increasingly, in my experience, uh, the way people are uh, being subject to this kind of uh, I would call it disinformation or misinformation uh, is not random. Uh, these trials now have orchestrated disinformation campaigns built around them. Uh, often because there's also civil suits in progress behind them. People are being sued for large sums of money. Uh, if the criminal case goes in the direction of a guilty verdict, that makes the civil liability case much easier, obviously. Well, people may not know, but that's the case. Um, and so there are orchestrated efforts by many in the civil litigation community who are bringing these cases to work with the media to propagate a particular narrative that's favorable to them. So th- these are orchestrated efforts now to get people to absorb this this information. And you see the same people involved in all these high profile cases over and over and over again. Um, so the, the idea yeah, that, 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 that you know people are just not weak and vulnerable to this. They're 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 literally being beaten over the brain with this misinformation every single day in the media. It would be almost impossible. It would be unreasonable to expect them not to be influenced by that. Yeah, and I think what's uh, what you said there is uh, we need. I'd like to just extract a, a couple of points from that. And one is that it isn't necessarily the the prosecutors or the people uh, prosecuting the criminal case uh, that are pushing a false media narrative. It is the people behind the scenes, and they're motivated by I call them my big three: money, power, ego. Yep. <laughs> they're motivated by money. Um, and you know, so often people don't realize how much is really at stake. So if, um, if, if the, if a police officer is deemed to, uh, have acted, uh, improperly, boy, there's millions of dollars that are going to change hands behind the scenes of that, irrespective of whether this guy's going to prison or not. And, uh, that's where the really, really, uh, I don't call them evil. Maybe it is. I don't know, but that's where the motive to, uh, disseminate information that will support their cause really starts to emerge. Right. And this actually, this the, the whole environment around the Rittenhouse case is a great example of this because, of course, the riots were taking place in Kenosha because a black man had been shot in Kenosha, shot in the back by the police. Um, and obviously this created a lot of tumult. There's civil suits filed over it. Now, the people who are going to pay the money in the civil suit, uh, they're not spending their own money. These are politicians. They're spending other people's money. The more political heat you can put under them, the more amenable they are going to be to pay with other people's money to make that political heat go away. And I, I just heard they, they settled for some 20-something million dollars. I'm not sure about the figure, but you know, politicians are happy to spend your money to make their political problems go away. So if you're on the, the, the plaintiff side of these civil suits, you know how this works. If you can pump up the heat on the politicians, you'll get your payday. And that's the way the process works. And the actual criminal prosecution is almost uh, you know, incidental to their core purpose of getting those multi-million, tens of millions of dollars payouts. Yeah, it's a, the, the criminal case is just a, a, the pawn. You know, it's, it's, it's really just the, 
the thing that started it, it's got to go. Uh, but at the end of the day, what really matters is the money behind the scenes. That's such a that's such a great point and a great perspective uh, that uh, that can help people understand how and why there might be a false narrative without jumping immediately to saying uh, you're you're a conspiracy theorist and uh, you uh, you know you just don't see reality, et cetera, et cetera. And as I think as you said, as as trial lawyers, as attorneys generally, we are taught to critically think, and that is question everything. I always my favorite. Uh, response when somebody, for instance, in the Rittenhouse case, when it after it happened, I had lots of inquiries from media, from friends, from uh, professionals in other areas of law. What do you think? And I just start with my series of I would want to know questions. Yep. Well, I'd want to know this, and I'd want to know that, and I'd want to know this, this, and this first. And then you can always tell the biases from people because they've already jumped past those uh, answers. And they almost don't even understand why I would want to know those things because they have already taken it as true that um, whatever question I'm I'm asking has already been resolved in the favor of the position they're advocating. And that is where we have to stop and look at things almost incrementally uh, using what I call the, uh, the, it's like the, it's like our version of the scientific method, right? We have an hypothesis and then we have to test it at every single incremental step and see what exactly happened. Uh, And until people do that in these big politically media, emotionally charged cases, uh, this stuff is going to continue. Right. And, and people, as we said, don't normally do that. And conversely, what they do as well is, of course, they'll latch on to something that's uh, emotionally powerful, but legally irrelevant to the case. Um, it doesn't really matter. It's not part of the elements of the criminal charge or of the defense, but it gets people excited. He, this person must be bad because they did some other, purportedly did some other bad thing. Uh, and especially if the defendant can be painted as, uh, you know, any of the worst things that we have in modern American society, a racist, a white supremacist, if he can be successfully labeled with that, whether it's true or not, um, very few people who are not attorneys, uh, not used to this kind of adversarial uh, critical thinking process are going to be prepared to invest any of their social capital in defending someone who's been portrayed as a racist or a white supremacist. Yeah, exactly. And and once that label and, and you've seen it used both ways. I mean, look at go all the way back to the O.J. Simpson case with the, with Furman. It's like the defense used it quite effectively, and then it's used when the, there is a defendant like that. Uh, and Rittenhouse might be a good example and a good segue here because you know those things, those underpinnings um, were the people were planting those seeds early on in this case uh, about militia or ties to this organization or that organization. And the reality is, he's a seventeen-year-old kid. Right. Um, and, you know, how much and even if he were like, what does it matter? Uh, and when what happened here? So turning to that, um, if you're looking at the Rittenhouse case, sort of big picture, uh, where do you start uh, with the assessment of something like this? Well, of course, I would start applying my, you know, for each of those interactions he had uh, where he's claiming self-defense as a as a legal defense to the criminal charge. I would look at those five elements of self-defense. Is there is there at least some minimal evidence to support each? And if there is, would the prosecution, to a reasonable degree of legal certainty, be likely to be able to, to disprove that element beyond a reasonable doubt? And frankly, when I look at the the actual evidence in this case, by the way, particularly the claims made in the charging document in the first place are, are overwhelmingly consistent with lawful self-defense. The fact that this case has been brought at all uh, to my mind, is an unusually exceptional travesty of justice, uh, and frankly suggests to me that we have we have some real problems in this country 
about things like actual probable cause to drag somebody into a trial in the first place, because this case should never have survived a probable cause hearing. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. And then you have to sort of ask the, the question, why? Like, how does that possibly happen? And, you know, there's this notion that I, I've been asked, I've been asked the same question uh, over and over and over again for the last 26 years. And when I, when I tell people what's the most common question we get as criminal defense lawyers, uh, sometimes I hear people say, well, can you get me out of it? Can you get me off? And I'm like, no, I mean, I'm talking like cocktail stuff. Uh, cocktail conversations. And really the question I get is, how do you represent those dirt balls? How do you represent those uh, criminals? How can you possibly uh, sit in court and help those people? And, and what they what is missing is the notion that, well, usually people who are sitting next to me, I actually quite like, you know, they're good people by and large, and there's exceptions and there's bad people out there, of course. But uh, more more often than not, they are people who have found themselves in a tricky situation through bad decisions, one or the other, or a situation like this and uh, with Rittenhouse. And they're usually not bad people, and they're humans, and we get to see them that way. And, and I don't think the, the general public does necessarily. Uh, and that's one of the things in a self-defense case we have to overcome uh, to get rid of that charging bias or that, that bias towards uh, convict, 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 bad guy, bad guy. And now I, I'm seeing this phase shift where being on the side of justice and, and right and doing uh, what you perceive as good and right is now turned around and it, it's bad, um, whether it's police officers or whether it's somebody who is uh, uh, engaged in some of the conduct that Rittenhouse was. Um, so I, I guess you're right. In the charging documents, it, 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 it doesn't – I was surprised this case ever got charged uh, people asked me early on, was it self-defense? And I watched the videos, and it, my initial gut reaction is, I would love to defend this case, and it would be a travesty if I had to. Yeah. And, 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 when, and of course, because it was so painfully yeah. obvious. The, the process itself becomes the punishment, right? Kyle Rittenhouse will never get his life back any more than George Zimmerman ever fully got his life back, despite being acquitted on all charges uh, by a jury in his trial. Um, because, of course, the public perception is, has now been set forever. Plus, um, you know, all, he, anytime people go to a criminal trial, it's not like the risk of conviction is ever zero. That's not how this works. There's noise in the system, and juries are, are dangerous and unpredictable creatures. There's always some possibility of getting convicted. Uh, innocent people do go to prison. So by putting him in the trial in the first place, it's not like, hey, let's just put him to the test and see what happens. No harm done. No, there's a real possibility of genuine harm done beyond just the, the, the punishment of the process itself. This kid could get convicted no matter how innocent he actually is and effectively spend the rest of his life in prison. Um, and, and that's yeah. just not the way the system ought to work. We should not subject people to that risk unless there's actually a reasonable basis for the prosecutor to believe that he can prove those charges overcome self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And I don't think any reasonable, objective, informed view of the evidence in this case could lead to that conclusion. Well, I'm going to ask you about a couple specific pitfalls, or, or maybe not pitfalls, but uh, sticky issues in the in the defense or self-defense part of it. But I want to comment on something you said there, too, is that uh, prosecutors in our system of justice have enormous discretion. They have discretion to uh, really go seek an indictment or not. Uh, and if they don't believe they can prove a case, uh, they shouldn't. And when they do think they can prove a case, sometimes they shouldn't anyway. They're, this is prosecutorial discretion. And one of the, the there's a couple things I hear all the time in my line of work that just make makes me cringe. 
Uh, one is, well, I'm just going to let the jury figure it out. I know my case is weak. I'm just going to let the jury decide it. And, uh, yeah, we'll just let the jury let him go. Um, or, y- you know, I want to get some trials, so I'm not going to offer any deals on a case. I just want to get some trial experience. I'm going to go try the case. And as an experienced criminal defense lawyer, I, I cannot stress the truth and importance of what you said there is you can be convicted even if you're innocent and it happens. You can be convicted of more than what you uh, did and it happens. And by that, I mean, if if a prosecutor seeks uh, a greater charge, say a, a, a purposeful murder or homicide versus a manslaughter and uh, just because uh, it looks good politically, well, there's a chance a jury convicts on that and the differences are immense. Um, and it's it, just to let a jury decide it and wash your hands of it in the biblical sense uh, is is uh, is really dangerous and and frankly can be quite evil stuff. Um, that actually when you <laughs> that that brings to mind another misperception I see in the public all the time, and it's this notion that hey, if the guy's convicted, well, he can appeal, right? As if the appeal is a, oh. a do over of the trial. Uh, and of course, what they don't recognize is you know when you go to trial. Uh, the legal presumptions are in your favor. You're, you're presumed to be innocent until you're proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The burden is entirely on the state. But once you're convicted, you're presumed to be guilty. And you go to appeal. And first of all, you better hope you preserved all the grounds of appeal, a trial, and all that technical stuff that lawyers have to take care of. Uh, but all the presumptions now are against you. It's presumed that the jury came to the correct verdict when they found you guilty. Uh, it's not anything like a do-over of the trial. It's an enormous uphill battle, and the vast majority of appeals, the conviction gets affirmed. Yeah, people ask me all the time on appeal. I've, I've just uh, submitted like four appellate briefs in the last two months uh, on direct appeal, and it, it, because during COVID, everything was shut down, and all of a sudden, the, the faucet turns on, yep. and people are uh, they're getting pushed to trial quickly, and, and I think some of the attorneys aren't prepared, and uh, I've seen some bad uh, trial lawyering and, and, they, and my clients are asking me, like, what are my chances of success on appeal? And I tell them, look, you don't want to know the answer to that. Right. Because if, if, if you just take it statistically, you're going to lose. I mean, you're going to lose the appeal statistically. Hopefully we have the one case where there is something that is significantly wrong with how it was done at trial. But uh, generally, they start, like you said, with the presumption that the verdict is accurate. They don't want to overturn it. Uh, they want to have... Uh, uh, some definitive outcome and they want to rely on, they don't want to undo justice once it's done. You know, they, they want some reliability and they don't, uh, they don't want to re drudge it all. So, also, uh, and, and they, they don't, don't care. care. And the public misunderstands what it means to win on appeal. When you win on appeal, it almost never means your legal problems went away. It just means the prosecution gets to try you again. <laughs> you get to do it yeah. all over again. And in the context of a paid, uh, criminal defense trial, it's not cheap. It's not cheap. And, and you know, I, and I guess by that, I mean, it's like if you, you've worked at the FBI and, and law enforcement and the prosecutors have all those resources at their disposal. If a defendant wants to hire somebody like you or a uh, crime scene expert or a DNA expert or a, um, I have a self-defense case, frankly, I may be talking to you about it soon, uh, where there's going to be uh, some stippling issues from gunshot wound resi- gunshot wounds, um, and it, it every time you do that, it's cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. You know, it's five grand here, five grand there, and right. don't think that the courts will just write the check for you uh, because you're indigent. That's a, that's a fight all the way through. So even if they do, it's, uh, it's not the it's not the same. I mean, 
Uh, you know, I often ask people, listen, so you've you've had to wave a gun at somebody or heaven forbid you shot somebody and you think it was lawful self-defense. Now you've been charged with murder or manslaughter. Uh, you know, it's not hard to go through a couple hundred thousand dollars pre-trial. I, I see it happen all the time. Uh, and then you get to the trial itself. And I ask people, think about how much money you would spend to avoid the fate of, of living the rest of your life in a cage. Probably a large percentage of your assets. What happens if you get convicted? You appeal. You win the appeal. And now you're coming back for a second trial. What do you think you have left in terms of resources for that second trial? Because you've already mortgaged the house again, sold the business, borrowed money from everybody you know. There's nothing left for a second trial. And don't think for a moment the prosecution doesn't know that. They know if they get a yeah. second swing at the ball, uh, it's it's a much bigger ball and you're you're much less resourced. And listen, we'd all like to think we live in a world where how much money you have doesn't affect the kind of justice you get. But we don't live in that world. Uh, these are battles. They're legal battles, but they're battles. And the degree and amount of resources you can bring to the battle matters. It makes a difference. There's a huge difference between uh, a $200,000 legal defense and a $20,000 legal defense. Yes. And it's it's almost uh, those numbers, when you say 200,000, it seems, I think, on the outside, so astronomical. Like, how could that possibly be? And uh, as you said, it, you can burn through that so quickly. And if you did on the defense side, everything that the government is doing on the on their side, like having uh, top-notch labs look at things, having uh, investigative resources at your disposal to go interview witnesses at the drop of a, uh, uh, just dial on a phone call at 10 at night. You know, it's like it, it is an expensive, expensive, time-consuming and proposition. And you want that. I mean, you want all, that can make the difference. That can make all the difference. Yes. I mean, just just being able to hire uh, private investigators to find witness witnesses, to, to be able to depose witnesses so you get them on the record early before they've been subject to two years of propaganda and appear as a witness in court. And now they're going to say whatever it was that they heard in the media for two years. Uh, you want to be able to impeach that kind of warped testimony with what they said the month after the event. But you can only do that if you collected that a month after the event. And if you didn't have the resources to do that, your lawyer's just stuck looking at that witness, saying the words coming out of their mouth, and you know it's not true, but but you don't have any way to impeach what they're saying because you didn't have the resources early on to do that. Um, so it, yeah, makes, it, it and, makes such a difference. And, and on my end, sometimes even if, even if people do have the resources, they've hired the wrong lawyer who doesn't know to do it. I mean, I tell this story uh, pretty frequently in the context of a self-defense uh, murder case that, that we won, so that was good news. But uh, I, the day that it happened, it was a client who knew me. I'd represented him on some traffic matters, like speeding. Um, I got a call at ten at night, and uh, he was—he had run from the scene. He had—he had left the scene of the shooting, uh, where he was uh, sort of confronted by an old rival on the street, and uh, uh, it turned into a gunfight. My client retreated down the street all the way to the house where he was staying. Uh, and then it ended up fatal for um, uh, for the other guy. But uh, he fled the scene before the police got there. And he called me that night and I said, get your backside in my office first thing in the morning. We need to deal with this. And uh, we arranged to have him surrender and, and do what was right that way. But I sat down in my conference room with my team of private investigators. And we decided that we better get out there to the scene of this right now and start looking at it, start knocking on doors, interviewing witnesses, gathering evidence. And we, what we found, and this is a very, very uh, telling story that I, 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 I share it with lots of people in the system doing what I do now. 
Um, the police had done no bullet traject- trajectory analysis. Um, my investigator was actually digging slugs out of people's sightings or sightings of people's houses. Um, there was about a half a dozen witnesses they had not spoken to, and this was in a neighborhood where if you don't talk to them like the next day, you know they've moved on. There's short-term leases or whatever. They just they just go on, and you never find them again. And there was a there were two witnesses, um, and uh, the bullet trajectory analysis that we did made the case. It made the case. We won. We walked that guy out of the courtroom not guilty, but not after a dogfight, a slugfest where not only did they prosecute him, they tried to exclude our investigative evidence because it wasn't done up to the standards of modern laser bullet trajectory analysis. You know, we, I, I had old school uh, gumshoers using strings. You know, and it, it, the, the point is, like you said, if you don't do this right away, you lose it and you can lose the case. Um, I mean, it's it, another fascinating... And it makes all the difference. Most people don't... It, when you explain it to them, they get it, but they don't think of it themselves, and that is... But when we get into court, what so the jury's going going to arrive at a verdict, right? They're the the ultimate decision maker. The jury doesn't know what actually happened. They weren't there. All, all they know is they're hearing these two different stories being told in the courtroom. The prosecution's telling a story of guilt and the defense is telling a story of not guilt and the jury has to decide if the prosecution's proven their story beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, but they they don't actually know what happened. And everyone who's involved in the process leading up to the trial knows that that's the end game, is this telling of stories to the jury. So when the police or the prosecutor's office is investigating, coming to this determination of whether they want to go to trial, what they're looking for is a sense of, do we have a story we can tell the jury? They're not. It's not like TV. They're not pursuing every possible piece of evidence that might possibly exist. They progress until they get to that decision point. Do we have enough for a good story or does it seem like we won't have that? And once they have a good story, well, that's what they're going to run with. And they don't need to look for any more witnesses for the defense. That's not their responsibility. Once they've got that narrative locked in to their satisfaction, that's when they'll make that decision to go to trial with that narrative. Yeah, exactly. I, I've had clients ask me, well, when I, you know, I have these witnesses, when are the police going to talk to them? I look at them and say, they're done. They're not talking to your witnesses. They're done. Now, they might right before trial, but as far as the decision-making on the charge, it's done. Right. You're, you're charged. It's, and it's it, done. And if they talk to them before trial, it's only to prepare to impeach them. Yes. It's not for, uh, it's not to find the truth. It's to figure out how to, uh, how to deal with them. But, um, I want to ask you a couple questions, turn it back to the Rittenhouse thing. You, you know, one of the first things in your, or the first element, I think you said was innocence, meaning you're not, at, uh, somebody can't be at fault in, in starting up the, uh, the fight or whatever the fray is that, uh, resulted in the self-defense. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Rittenhouse sort of crossing state lines, going back with a AR-15 rifle. And I know some of that disinformation came out early on. Uh, and it turned out not to be true. Um, but what about somebody's, uh, what about Rittenhouse's conduct to say, I'm going to go help out uh, somebody defending or protecting their business? Does that cause you any pause when you uh, think about the ultimate self-defense action that happened even later than that? Well, not in, not in the legal context per se, in the technical sense. Uh, I, I will say, and I've said many times that uh, you know, if, Ritten, if Kyle was my 17-year-old son, I would strongly discourage him from doing that. Uh, I, it's it's a high risk endeavor yeah. as, as he's discovering now. It's incredibly imprudent behavior, but imprudent behavior is not a crime. So it's possible to believe that that was a stupid thing for him to do, 
and also believe that it's not criminal conduct for which he should be convicted and sent to prison. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think that's an important distinction that we have to make at times, which is, you know, you have a scenario where um, he made some dumb decisions and dumb decisions have led to these consequences that he's now facing. Um, on the other hand, he is, um, it doesn't make him guilty. So should he have been there with an AR-15 at 17 years old in the midst of what was nothing short of rioting and, and craziness? The answer is absolutely not. I mean, he's lucky in some ways to be alive. I mean, that's a, that's a very dangerous scenario. And to, to go there uh, carrying a rifle uh, or standing there with a rifle, it's like you're you're almost asking for trouble, and that's why I bring this up. It's like if I had a soft underbelly, as I was, if I were defending this case, it'd be like, well, it, it, while it may not be a technical problem with the elements of self-defense, the emotional uh, impact that why of the question, why is he there with an AR-15 if he's not looking for trouble or to make some point, uh, is a tough. Uh, it, it's going to be a tough hurdle, I think, for the defense. Um, yeah, and it, sure. it has I'm nothing sure. to do with the law. I'm not sure how tough we'll, we'll have to see, but there's there's no doubt that is the prosecution's narrative in this case. I mean, I, I've watched all the pretrial hearings in this case, uh, and that's clearly what the prosecutor is angling for. Because I I don't I, I don't think the prosecutor has a leg to stand on on the actual legal merits of the self defense claim for each of the encounters as you look at each of them. Um, so that instead of taking kind of a, a detailed technical approach to attacking uh, the self defense claims with respect to each of the actual criminal charges. Uh, the prosecutor's instead kind of painting this ambiguous vigilante intervening in events that are not his responsibility kind of characterization of uh, Rittenhouse generally, because I think that's all he has. Uh, you know, we've all, of course, in the legal profession heard the adage, you know, when the when the facts are on your side, you pound the facts. And when the law is on your side, you pound the law. And when neither is on your side, you pound the table. Uh, I see a lot of yeah. table pounding going on with the prosecutor. Um, but because it's reasonable to perceive Kyle's decision to go to a riot um, of a place where, I mean, obviously he knew violence was uh, high risk. That's why he brought the AR rifle with him in the first place uh, as a stupid decision and then try to kind of inflate that poor judgment into something that looks like a crime. I think that's all the prosecution has to work with in this case. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I'd be concerned about, or I would just tell the jury, look, it, it does. Th these two things can be true at the same time right. is that Kyle Rittenhouse can be an, like, if he were my 17 year old son, I would, I would be infinitely pissed off. I mean, I, I like, what are you thinking? Going to a place like this, carrying a weapon like that, I mean, you're just asking for trouble. And at the same time, it can be a valid self-defense claim. Both those things can be true at the same time. And uh, that's what, uh, as a defense attorney, I would be uh, hammering. you you got to take those hits on the dumb decision-making mm -hmm. and say, yeah, I mean, it was dumb, but it doesn't mean he wasn't allowed to defend himself. Right. I, um, I would be shocked if the defense did not lead with that argument right from their opening statement at the beginning. Like, look... We can all yeah. agree this was stupid, uh, but he's a 17-year-old kid. He was doing it with the best of intentions, uh, and it doesn't mean that these criminal charges are valid against him. Uh, but I, th I think right. you have to basically concede the imprudence of being there with the rifle in the first place and kind of try to take that piece off the table. And then what about this notion? You said it, and I meant to ask you about it a long time ago, and we got sort of sidetracked on some other stuff, which I think was a great conversation. But uh, you said it uh, a couple seconds ago that, uh, you know, the, each instance here of self-defense, 
uh, how it, it gets sort of complicated sometimes when we have an ongoing uh, sort of continuous fact pattern. And here they all are they all are looked at somewhat. In, we can look at them all somewhat individually. That uh, all right, this incident, the first one here was self defense, and then um, this next incident was self defense. Um, but then you have this element of subjectivity on Rittenhouse's own honest belief. So he gets himself out of one incident, runs away, and then there's more coming. It's, it's really difficult to slice that up individually uh, without some spillover. And, uh, and I think that's dangerous in some ways for the defense uh, in the sense that uh, everything is sort of inextricably linked. At the same time, they're individual incidents. As, a, as, a, as an expert on self-defense, how do you, how do you assess that one? Well, I think the real key is the first event, the the shooting of Joseph Rosenbaum, because if that can be characterized as clearly lawful self, because I think you're right. If that was, if that first shooting was sketchy, that would flow through all the others. You know, the foundation is rotten, everything else, then all that other stuff happened because the first shooting was bad. Uh, That, that would be a bad situation for Kyle to be in. Um, Fortunately for him, um, the first shooting is about as clear cut a case of lawful self-defense as could possibly be imagined. I mean, in the charging document against him, uh, the charging document uh, recites how Rosenbaum was pursuing Rittenhouse and Rittenhouse was in flight, uh, lunging at Rittenhouse, grabbing for Rittenhouse's rifle to take it from him. Uh, Rittenhouse is backing up the entire time. Um, I, it doesn't get any clearer self-defense than that. Uh, so I, I think the the strong just as much as a bad foundation for that first shooting would flow through the others i think the strong foundation also flows through because now here's a kid who was just lawfully attacked had to use deadly force in self defense and he's running he's running to the police while he's being pursued down the street i mean that's where he's going he's trying to get to the police um so by the I, angry mob with pursuing the angry mob or, yeah. or knocking him down uh leaping through the air to stomp on him uh, striking him around the head and shoulders with large, heavy skateboards, uh, approaching him with pistols in hand. I mean, w- every one of these instances, the, the evidence in favor of self-defense is overwhelming. I think it would be a problem if the first one looked sketchy, but it but it just doesn't. Yeah, and if I'm the prosecutor, I want to turn the clock back before that first one and say he's at fault for going there in the first place. He shouldn't have been there in the first place, as you said. That that's That's their only... That's the only Trump card they have. Yeah, I think, so I think it's, it's, uh, the prosecution is has taking a kind of a twofold approach so far in these pretrial hearings. Where for folks who don't know, the pretrial hearings are basically where the uh, the legal battlefield of the courtroom is being defined: what evidence will be allowed, what legal arguments will be allowed or not excluded. Um, and what the prosecution seems to be trying to do is a, a twofold kind of uh, crafting of the narrative. First, they the prosecution is has tried, they, they failed, the judge didn't allow this, but tried to bring in a lot of uh, basically unrelated other events not connected to the night in question, uh, conduct by Kyle Rittenhouse. He was involved in a, uh, his sister was in a fist fight with somebody and he intervened. That was, uh, that was caught on video. The prosecution tried to get that introduced. There was a, a little video where Kyle Rittenhouse is outside a CVS that's apparently being robbed. And he doesn't do anything except call 911, which is what we would want anyone to do. But he talks about, hey, if I had my gun, I could do this or do that. But he didn't have a gun. He didn't intervene. He didn't actually do anything. But the prosecution was trying to get these what they call other acts evidence uh, admissible before the jury as part of his uh, narrative to suggest, hey, here's a vigilante. Here's someone who 
he deliberately, unreasonably intervenes in things he has no responsibility for. Uh, this is someone who puts himself in positions of trouble, and he should suffer the consequences for that poor decision-making. That's part of the narrative. So he, the, the prosecution is trying to bring in that other context. And the judge has said, no, we're not going to allow that in because it's too disparate in time from the actual events or in nature from the actual events. So that evidence is not coming in, almost certainly. Um, but the other thing the prosecutor is trying to do is kind of the reverse of that, where they're trying to add in that unrelated context. The, the prosecutor is also trying to strip out all the related context. So the prosecutor is trying to get the judge to exclude evidence that there was arson taking place, that there was other things happening the night of the events that could reasonably influence Kyle Rittenhouse in his perception that he was facing a deadly force attack. In essence, the prosecution is trying to get the judge to agree to limit the evidence to basically nothing except the specific moments when Kyle Rittenhouse pressed the trigger and remove all the other surrounding context from the, from the narrative, um, which of course, is not how self-defense cases are evaluated. They're evaluated based on the totality of the circumstances as the defender reasonably perceived them to be. And that's fortunately the position the judge recognizes, and he's not allowing the prosecution to get away with this. But what the prosecution would like would be, apparently, if the jury would see nothing in terms of evidence except Kyle Rittenhouse pressing the trigger three times. Yeah, and that's just uh, that, that's a gross. Uh, I don't want to call it a misstatement. That that that's a that's just a horrible rendition of the facts. It's not accurate. It's not fair. And you know, all so so often when I'm trying self defense cases, the dead guy is a dirty, rotten criminal. Um, and I'm not allowed unless my client knew that he was a dirty, rotten, dangerous criminal to bring that out. And that's just how the law is. And, and this is to punctuate the point the other way. It's like if I were trying to, as a defense lawyer, prove that uh, my client who killed somebody, uh, the guy who died is a had committed 10 murders in the past and, had, and, no, and always beats his wife and uh, is violent and uh, robs people. But my client didn't know that. It wouldn't be fair in the context of a self-defense case to be able to present that evidence and contaminate the jury's impression of the victim of the crime. Nor is it fair in this case for the prosecutor to do that to Rittenhouse just because he was in this thing. I saw that video with his girlfriend or whatever that was all about. Um, you know, it's, it's like, what does that have to do with what he was thinking when he was on his back there and had his gun and people coming at him? Uh, it, it's completely irrelevant to, other than to say, this is a kid that doesn't deserve self-defense, and this is all we have. Even if you do have these technical elements, he still shouldn't have been there, and we want him convicted. And we, we want evidence based upon actual facts and circumstances and nothing more, and certainly nothing less. And, and you, you, the point you're making is that it, the things that he perceived, that is Rittenhouse perceived, that is what is going to be important. And that's what that trial judge is saying, is that, um, say, it, it, like if Rittenhouse uh, were unconscious and woke up in the middle of this riot, well, he wouldn't have any context to know how it started, where it was, and what he had perceived that night. But that's not what happened here. You know, he he understood and, and had a chance to perceive and digest and comprehend everything that was going on. And all that is relevant if it is relevant to his decision-making process on the self-defense action when it finally happened. Um, and I, I think the judge has done a, a tremendous job 
of sort of keeping the wolves at bay here on the uh, on the hue and cry to oh, say no. Great. Here's what yeah. Yeah. Schroeder, yeah. Schroeder yeah. has been a fantastic uh, judge to date. Uh, very very impressed. Of course, you know this is another thing. I just had a conversation with another lawyer about this, and I was I was talking about how, how what a great job Schroeder is doing, what a reasonable job he's doing, how well balanced. Uh, but of course, you know he's he's an old school judge. I mean, he's been a judge a long time. Before that, he was a prosecutor. I think he's got something like fifty years collectively. Um, in the criminal justice system as a prosecutor or a judge. Um, and my the, the lawyer I was talking to said, yeah, what's going to happen when all those guys are gone? And now we have no, a no. new generation of judges who've come through the law school system. And I can, you probably know this, but uh, I speak at law schools quite a bit. And if you go through a law school today, it's all social justice. It, it's a completely yeah, different yeah. environment than it was when I went through law school in the uh, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, when you went through in the probably the mid '90s, um, it's all social justice, and you know that's where lawyers come from. Is that training environment, and judges come from where the lawyers come from. Uh, so yeah, it'll yeah. be interesting to see how how this the criminal justice system changes, if not in substance, because the statutes are the same and the jury instructions are the same, and 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 the case law is the same. But in terms of style, how those things are applied, because we mentioned earlier how much discretion prosecutors have, and basically it's unlimited discretion uh, whether to bring a case or not bring a case. Um, well, trial judges ha- have the same degree of discretion uh, in their courtroom. I mean, they decide what evidence is allowed or not, what legal arguments are allowed or not. And yes, in theory, those decisions can be appealed after the fact, uh, but only if they've really abused that discretion is anything going to change on appeal. Uh, so basically, when a judge makes an evidentiary decision at trial, that's it. That That's fixed in cement. Uh, by the way, yeah, yeah. good reason to hire a good lawyer for trial, because if, if that lawyer fails to make the effective argument on that evidentiary question, it's done. There, there's no real second shot uh, at having that argued. Yeah, you've got you've to win it, and you've got to win it immediately. You know, you have to, when I stand in front of, when I go into a courtroom, uh, we want to be the purveyors of uh, of what the law is. You know, you have to know the evidence rules. You have to understand when where where the soft spots are and what arguments you're going to make that are going to be convincing. Because once a judge lets evidence like that in, you can't unring the bell, and the jury's heard it, and that's that. And the court of appeals is going to look at that as an abusive discretion standard, abusive discretion standard rather. And uh, you're it's really hard to reverse it. But boy, your point scares me a little bit. That you know, it's really a, just a, a one and a half generation problem where the next uh, round of attorneys coming up doesn't understand or, or care about some of these things being uh, uh, the, the law being enforced equally. And I mean that that way because uh, there's always a scenario where you can flip this around and it's going to be turned on you. Um, and yeah, then they're going to rise to... You had talked earlier about, uh, you know, talking, chatting with other people who are non-lawyers and they wonder, you know, well, how can you defend criminals? Uh, very, very common question. And... Uh, I mean, my response has always been, uh, it's not really defending that individual for me. I mean, of course, that's what you're doing in a nuts and bolts sense. Um, but it's a matter of, of due process. It's a matter of holding the state to their obligation. If they want to put this person in a cage, they have to prove them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That's their burden. That's the way we've set up the system. Uh, and if they can't do that, they ought not be able to put that person in a cage. And I don't care who the person is, because if we deny due process for the worst of us, we deny it for everybody. 
Because if you're unwilling to give that person who you think is horrible due process of law, well, then you, you run the risk that if it's your turn in the dock, you don't get due process of law either. And I don't think that's a world that any of us wants to live in, or at least we should not want to live in, because it, that's a very unpleasant world. Yeah, it is. And, you know, there's there's the old uh, movie. It was the old Sir Thomas More quote out of The Man of All Seasons where, you know, he's being the notion that you can take discretionary justice into your own hands because the person in front of you is so bad that it justifies an exception to do it this way. Uh, and, and, you know, Sir, Sir Thomas More said, no, I, I'm, I'm never going to do that because where am I going to hide when the devil turns back on me? Yep. Um, and and it's, it's such a it's so. Uh, telling right now and appropriate right now. And I'm seeing it happen with the notions of free speech, I'm seeing it happen with due process uh, in, uh, in sex cases or these kinds of cases, you know, and if this were in, uh, if you want to take the other political perspective, if this were, were a racially charged uh, killing going the other way, like you wouldn't, you can, I can almost always come up with a scenario where if the same rules they want to apply here were applied in that scenario, they would get an outcome they don't like. Um, and that's why we, we don't represent clients necessarily. I mean, we do, but you can say, well, no, it's the case. Worry about the evidence. Worry about the case. They still have to prove it. And it doesn't matter that you don't like this guy. In fact, it is the people you don't like that you want to defend. And that's the, that's the, it, that can be gone in a poof. You know, it's like one or just a, just a one and a half generations when these people ascend to judgeships, like you said, and then the court of appeals uh, positions, uh, beyond that, it's done. You know, it's like you, you've lost it, and now we have this discretionary justice that uh, that you know that uh, not to get too um, I don't know cliche about it, but it's I, I always I always I always say it's well, it's not like that kind of ideology killed a hundred million people last century, except it did. <laughs> you know, that's the uh, that's sort of the uh, the danger of it, but. Well, look, uh, this has been awesome. I, I got to ask you, what's your, you got a prediction for this one. And uh, if you don't want to give it to me, that's fine. But uh, have you thought about, uh, like, what's the outcome? What's going to happen? Yeah, I don't do predictions of verdicts. Uh, I've been in the law too long for that. Uh, I'm happy to say that if a verdict is arrived at based on the actual legal merits, the evidence and the law, this is an acquittal on every charge. Uh, no question. Uh, but that's a big if. Uh, because you never know for sure if that's how the the verdict is going to be arrived at. I would I would say the one kind of wishy washy, uh, ambiguous um, issue here is actually the gun charge, this misdemeanor, uh, minor in possession of a weapon charge. Uh, and I, I only say that because the way the law is drafted in Wisconsin is is so ambiguous. I mean, this was argued at a pretrial hearing, and even the judge said from the bench, "Well, I can't figure out what this is supposed to mean." Uh, so if the judge can't figure out what it is, arguably it, it's so ambiguous that it ought to be facially unconstitutional uh, to convict anybody of that crime. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, all the other criminal charges and legal defenses are pretty well defined and pretty clear cut. And, and those are acquittals all the way. This this charge should frankly be dismissed before trial or alternatively, the jury not instructed on the charge because it's so ambiguous and vague and so many exceptions and exceptions to exceptions. And uh, it's impossible. I mean, listen, I'm a pretty experienced, skilled attorney. When I look at it, my analysis is the, 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 the criminal statute doesn't fit the facts of the case. So I don't think it should have been charged in the first place. Um, and you're talking about the juvenile gun charge. But it, even that well, worst well, case is it's, it's, you know, it's a misdemeanor conviction. So. Yeah. 
How does that? I was gonna I was gonna wrap it up, but you just gave me another question that I'd love to get your thoughts on, and that is, um, uh, if you have a individual who is not necessarily allowed to be in possession of a firearm at the particular time they are in possession of a firearm, how does that impact a self defense case with the firearm uh, later on? In Wisconsin, it doesn't. It doesn't have any impact. Uh, self defense. So, uh, the way self defense law generally works is if you're engaged in some kind of misconduct, it has to be some form of um, forcible misconduct. So you're the initial aggressor, you're committing a robbery of a liquor store, uh, something along those lines. That will lose you self-defense. But you don't lose self-defense because you're engaged in just unlawful conduct generally. I mean, if you're writing a bad check, that could be a crime, but you don't lose self-defense over that. If you're just speeding in your car, that could be a crime, but you don't lose self-defense over that. Uh, now, that's under Wisconsin law and the law in most states. There are a few states that do technically in their self-defense statute say to qualify for self-defense, you must not be engaged in unlawful activity of any kind. Uh, but then when you look at the case law in those states, the appellate courts invariably say, hey, hey, we don't mean any unlawful activity. We mean some kind of you know violent, threatening, forcible, unlawful activity. Yeah, so the, the, kind of, the kind of unlawful activity that it, that's giving rise to the situation where you needed self-defense. Exactly, yeah. exactly right. So uh, it shouldn't have, under Wisconsin law, it shouldn't have any impact on a self-defense claim at all. It's completely irrelevant. Even if he's actually uh, guilty of the gun charge, which, uh, as far as I can tell, and the, the difficulty is, you know, you have to read the first, the statute he's charged under, and then it has, uh, you know, unless you meet the conditions of this other statute, and you read that one, and it says, well, unless you meet the conditions of this third statute, uh, and it all becomes very uh, confusing and complex. When I do that step-by-step -step analysis, what I see is a, a statutory framework that is, doesn't apply to the facts of this case. Uh, but it could be confusing enough that, you know, a jury might convict, or, you know, so sometimes you get juries who, you know, they've been involved in this trial for a long time and they know there's a lot of heat about it and they 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 have one juror who's holding out uh and they'll say listen all right uh, I, I can't agree to convict this kid of murder but if, if you want to settle for the misdemeanor gun charge so we can all go home we'll do that so you know that's always a possibility yeah those kind of compromised verdicts that's the that's the real life trial lawyering that a lot of people don't realize that uh just because you know, you get a six to six split and uh, people want to go home or a 12 to or 11 to one split and people want to go home. Well, we'll just convict him of this, not that. I've lost cases that I should have won uh, where there's been multiple counts, all the same thing. And they acquit on all of them. And then the last one they convict and, you know, they told me, hey, the jurors will talk to you afterwards and, and like they've done you a huge favor. And they don't realize your client's going out the back door for the rest of his life yeah. um, um, because it only took one. And, um, and generally, I don't know why why jurors arrive at their verdicts. I mean, they may tell us, as you say, kind of in an informal way afterwards, but they're under no obligation uh, to tell anybody how they arrived at their verdict. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, so it's protected. you get these verdicts, it's like, well, how could that have happened? And it's, uh, you know, it's it's a complete black box, really. Yeah, it's uh, it's a scary thing. And uh, I, I woe to be Kyle Rittenhouse right now uh, on the eve of his trial and having to go sit through... Uh, uh, what really is going to be the most stressful uh, process he's ever had to endure, short of maybe the evening in question. Uh, it, it really is uh, a heck of a thing. A, a murder trial is a heck of a thing. And, uh, you know, you just want the just outcome for everybody. And you wish in this case he didn't have to do it because I think that I, I agree with you. I, I think it would it, it is almost unjust that he has to do it, given what I've seen of the evidence. And uh, it's it's surprising to me that there's so many people that see it otherwise. But you know, what do we no, know? We're I just know. lawyers. We're just lawyers.
I, I always caution people because I, I'm a member of the gun community, the self-defense community. I have been my whole life. And there's a segment of the community that I love uh, that has kind of a almost like a sheepdog mentality. Like, hey, I have a gun. I've been trained. I, I can protect myself. I can protect other innocent victims of crime. And and uh, there's nothing morally wrong with that. Persp- In fact, it's a morally valid perspective. I, I get it. I understand it. But people have to think through what the consequences are if you get engaged in a confrontation, especially a confrontation that goes physical. Because the moment you're engaged in that confrontation, you just incurred two risks you were not incurring a moment before. A greater than zero risk of dying in that confrontation if it goes bad, and a greater than zero risk of going to prison for the rest of your life. Those are now two possible outcomes. And there are reasons, good reasons, to take those risks. If you're going to be killed, if your wife is going to be killed, there are circumstances in which those risks are worth it. But I think if people think it through, the list of those circumstances is pretty short. Yeah, that's such a good point. And, you know, the other thing, the the other uh, risk or consequence, I suppose is a better way to put it, is that you have to live with the fact that maybe you took somebody's life. And I, I don't want to belittle that. I mean, I've never had to do it, but I can't imagine that's an easy thing to go to bed with every single night for the rest of your life and, and reliving the, the stress and the and uh, the trauma of that, whether you were in the right or not, it cannot be an easy thing. And then uh, one final thing I'll say is that I've had, uh, just as we're, we're sort of getting a, a little bit um, uh, advisory about it, uh, a couple of def- defense cases I have had with folks who are good people who carry a concealed handgun lawfully. They have, uh, I've had a couple people now who have had to pull their weapons uh, and they've done it, or maybe not had to, but decided to. And they have done it in the context of helping uh, a scenario out, a third-party type scenario in a parking lot or elsewhere. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the, the situation becomes very real to them, where they have uh, now they're they're they've got a pistol. It has been not only brandished but maybe uh, directed at somebody else. And then the somebody else is the kind of somebody else that is going to respond to that, like, "Oh yeah." Uh, and I've had two cases where the somebody else walked directly up to the barrel of the pistol and said, go ahead and shoot me. Um, and then uh, it goes poorly. You know, of course, my clients in both those cases did not pull the trigger and was ultimately charged with um, criminal offenses as a result of that conduct because even brandishing a gun uh, can be seen as a show of deadly force. Um, and what yeah, happens uh, after that is, uh, it, you know, it can get real dicey and real sticky when you get into criminal cases. Now, we had trials on both. We won both. Even had one client get his uh, firearm back on the courthouse steps, which was uh, – uh, a, a big win uh, with uh, Derek DeBross and I tried that case, but sure. just uh, just words of caution. As I'm sure when you train people, you you tell them that this is don't don't carry your gun around there um, with this notion of being uh, that you're uh, you're Rambo that you can deal with all these scenarios because the more training you get, I think you probably the more you realize you need more training. Yeah, the most common cases I consult on are uh, aggravated assault with firearm charges, uh, and these are. Like I said at the start, normal law-abiding people, never been in trouble with the law a day in their lives. All they did was make the other person aware that they had a gun in order to change that other person's behavior. And that's what self-defense is, right? Uh, But it also checks all the boxes for aggravated assault with a weapon. And that you now have to justify as lawful self-defense or defense of another. Uh, And in most states, that's good for 10 years, sometimes 20 years with the firearm sentencing enhancement. 
Um, and maybe all they did was show their gun in the holster. Maybe they pulled the gun out. Maybe they pointed it at the person. Maybe they didn't. But all those differentiations between those scenarios I just described, whether or not to charge that is in the total discretion of the prosecutor. Uh, if, if he wants to say that you committed aggravated assault, you put another person in imminent fear of deadly force harm by sweeping back your jacket and showing them the gun in your holster and saying, you better stay back. He can charge you with aggravated assault with a firearm. And now you're going to prison, uh, going to trial, I should say, um, and facing a prospect of 10 or 20 years in prison. Yep. Uh, and and, and I had to, to think this through. And uh, very few of the cases I consult on was somebody actually shot. I mean, we've done murder cases and so forth, but... Most commonly, it's a display of the weapon, no shots fired, nobody injured, and that's enough for that client to be looking at 10 to 20 years in prison. Which is a good reason to stop and think and uh, before you act, and even before that, uh, get as much training and education as you can, which uh, brings me to sort of the final point. If somebody wants to get as much training and education as they can, uh, you've got a website and some resources for them. Why don't you just go ahead and uh, repeat that so everybody knows where to go. Uh, sure. The best thing people can do is probably go to, uh, if they go to our website, lawofselfdefense.com. If you add the word free book after that, lawofselfdefense.com slash free book, we'll send you our book. We ask you to pay the shipping and handling, but the if you buy the book on Amazon, it's 25 bucks plus shipping and handling. So we eat the 25 bucks. So I would recommend getting it from us. Um, and then uh, we also have a YouTube channel. Uh, if people are interested, we'll be covering the Kyle Rittenhouse trial in real time. Uh, so I'll be watching every minute of the trial. I'll be live commenting on it minute by minute. Uh, and then at the end of each day, we'll be doing a kind of plain English uh, legal analysis of what happened over the course of the day, what was important, what wasn't, what are the implications of all that. And we'll do that for every single day of the trial, starting tomorrow with jury selection and going all the way through uh, to the verdict. And, and perhaps, heaven forbid, there's a conviction to sentencing uh, after that. Um, and we'll we'll be sharing all that on our uh, our YouTube channel, which is simply youtube.com slash law of self-defense. Awesome. Well, look, I know you're busy and I know you're on the eve of this thing and uh, you got a lot of work ahead of you and some time commitment to it. So I do appreciate you taking the time talking to us here at Lawyer Talk. Uh, it's uh, it's been most enjoyable, as always. Now, the couple times I've talked to you, I could go on for hours, I think. So uh, I do appreciate it. And uh Hopefully, we see the just outcome of this trial. That sounds great, Steve. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Take care. Bye. Bye. That was Andrew Bronca. Man, uh, that conversation really got deeper than I uh, initially intended. I was hoping just to get some uh, quick self-defense pointers on uh, on the Rittenhouse case before uh, it went to trial tomorrow. But as things uh, tend to happen here on Lawyer Talk, uh, we the conversation got a life of its own and, uh, and sort of took its own direction. So no big deal. I think it was well worth the time, and I hope you did too. But for now, uh, it's time to wrap up another edition of Lawyer Talk, a special edition, I suppose, uh, coming at you from Channel 511, where you can uh, check us out at channel511.com. You can check out the podcast at lawyertalkpodcast.com. And who knows, maybe even I will get down here to the studio to give us some ongoing insight into the Rittenhouse case uh, as the evidence gets presented and uh, the case starts to unfold. But now it's time to sign off yet again. Uh, This has been Lawyer Talk off the record, on the air, at least until now.